So I've just come back from traveling in Europe, teaching at a wonderful new uh, Swiss retreat center um, of insight meditation that's uh, above Interlaken, a very beautiful place, um, and other parts of Switzerland, and then also spending some time in Russia, in St. Petersburg, um, where it was still the white nights. It doesn't get dark at night. It stays light all night. It's close enough to the North Pole, I think. But, um, and it was very moving, and, and uh, I'd never been in Russia before. Um, kind of special to be there in the St. Petersburg, which is also kind of the artistic capital of Russia, incredible art and ballet and opera and music and, and uh, um, museums and so forth. And at the same time, there's the sense, at least I had, being in Russia, of the suffering and the underlying struggle and depression of people. And then in kind of reviewing and reading the history of people in Russia from the time of the czars and then the, you know, the Bolshevik revolution and the years under uh, Stalin and then the World War II where St. Petersburg, almost a million people died because it was besieged by the German army for three years. And, and then the, the communists and now um, there's a lot of struggle with this new democracy and lack of equality and so forth. And somebody there called it a kleptocracy at this point, that there's so much kind of graft and corruption. And yet there's also this incredible, deep, loving spirit, very powerful kind of spiritual energy. But part of the, part of the spiritual energy and the openness that I found speaking to people and friends in Russia was um, this hunger, if you will, a kind of spiritual hunger, because things had been closed down um, under the communists for so long, but without necessarily a lot of discrimination. And there are a million different groups. There's the Buddhists, and the, you know, there's the New Age groups, and there's the clairvoyant, and the theosophists, and the you name it, it's all happening over there, and not yet a lot of discrimination. Um, a lot of interest, but yet that to be learned. And so tonight I was kind of reflecting about that and wanted to give a talk that I have given in the past. So for those of you who heard it, you sort of like hearing some stories again, but they're some of my favorite stories, so hopefully they're yours as well. Um, of how to sort out through all the possible teachings that there are around. Rumi, the poet, begins, You've lost your camel, my friend, and everyone's giving you advice. You don't know where your camel is, but you do know these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement. Yes, I've lost my camel too, a big reward for whoever finds it. Who will you listen to? And human... Human beings, we as human beings, our perceptions are so um, tentative, if you will. I mean, for a particular time, we may think one thing and believe something, and then at another phase in life, we may believe something entirely different. Have you noticed? Daniel 
Simmons, a professor of psychology at Harvard, did a dramatic set of experiments on human perception. He and a colleague made a video of two teams of basketball players, one team dressed in white and the other in black uniforms, um, constantly on the court passing a basketball back and forth. Um, and observers were asked to count the number of passes that took place in a three-minute segment of this game. Um, after about 45 seconds of the basketball being passed back and forth in this game of these teams, a woman in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of the group, stands in front of the camera, beats her chest vigorously, and then walks away. 50% of the observers missed the gorilla, Simon said. We got the most striking reactions. We'd ask people, did you see anyone walking across the court while you were counting the basketball passes? They'd say no. Anything at all, no. Eventually we would ask, did you notice the gorilla? <laughs> and they'd say, the what? This is one of those psychological studies which is impossible to believe in the abstract. If you look at the video called Gorilla in Our Midst, when you know what's coming, the woman in the gorilla suit is inescapable. How could anyone miss it? But people do, right? The majority, half the people didn't see her. So it says something about our perceptions, doesn't it? Alexis de Tocqueville, 150 years ago, observing uh, the American culture, said, In America, I have seen the freest and best educated of men in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world, yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow, and they seemed almost sad in their pleasures because they never stopped thinking of the good things they had not yet gotten. <laughs> so, what do we follow, or what do we believe? These are confusing times, in a way. It's not just Marin that's the spiritual marketplace with the Swami and Guru and Lama and Mama of the Week, you know, coming through. <laughs> but even in, even in um, St. Petersburg, and you go in the spiritual bookstores and there's the Hasid section and the Sufi section and the, you know, the yoga section and the shamanic things and all these things are passed off as the new, greatest, the, the highest, the best. Rita Mae Brown wrote, in America the word revolution is used to sell pantyhose, <laughs> right? <laughs> there is everything that's offered. Um... But what is really important for us to follow? And there are all these kind of obvious spiritual teachings that are put out there. I saw a little button actually in one of the kind of record stores I went in that had those sort of funny buttons. And this one is on reincarnation. And it just said, I, and I reincarnated for this, right? <laughs> So there's all this kind of great spiritual abundance, um, and in some ways a confusing abundance. Um, how do we sort it out? A story of a woman who came to me in Massachusetts, whose husband was a, a doctor who died of cancer, very beloved in the community, and they'd been involved in a number of the spiritual endeavors in, around the Amherst area. Um, and uh, it was a great loss to her and to the community. Um, he was a really important 
kind of leader and figure. And after a very moving funeral and people coming and bringing food and trying to care for her, a couple of weeks later, a, a good friend who was involved with the Christian mystical community came and said, you know, I just have to tell you that he is fine. I was uh, in meditation and in the, just the deepest place, and I saw him with the master, with the ascended masters in heaven, and it was just this beautiful scene, and she described it, and uh, her, um, in her, her friend, the, the, the woman whose husband died, was um, very deeply moved and reassured by this. But a week later or so, another friend came to visit her and said, you know, I've been doing the 49-day Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bardo Tadol, and doing the prayers for his well-being, the visualizations, and I have to tell you, you know, I have seen him, and he, he was in blue light, and it was in the, in the western direction, and with this particular Buddha and Bodhisattva, and his spirit is just fine. But she was a little confused by this. So she called the master that she knew well and trusted, who was a Sufi master, and to try to sort out how to understand this. And before she could even ask the questions, he said, you know, he's just fine. I've been meditating, and um, in the deepest meditation, he, I, I, I've been tracking his spirit, and he's reincarnated. Already he's in the womb of a woman in Washington, D.C. He's going to take this great birth. So she called me, right? <laughs> and after she told the story... I listened to her, and I said, well, with all these things and all these people giving you different conflicting stories, what is it that you know, independent of what everyone else might teach or tell you? And I would ask this to each of us, what is it that we really know, actually? Even if the Buddha and the Dalai Lama and your mother said no, that you would still know so deeply in your own being and heart and spirit that this is the truth. And it may not be very much. It may be just a few things, very basic. Sometimes I'll ask groups of people when I talk about this, and someone will say, I know that everything changes, the truth of impermanence. Maybe except my own delusion. Other than that, everything else changes, you know. Or someone will raise their hand and say, whatever I believe, there is another opinion. It's like George Bush. Somebody asked him, um, you know, was it true that he didn't like the Kyoto Accords? And he said, yes, he preferred the Toyota Camry. But you know it's true, whatever opinion you have about anything, there is another point of view on it. Or what we know of this world is that there are moments of pleasure and moments of pain. There's light and dark and joy and sorrow and up and down and gain and loss. 
and that this is the nature of life, to have summer and winter and day and night. These are the things we really know. Change, the different opinions and perspectives, the, the reality of praise and blame and gain and loss changing, the sound of all the kids, it's so great. How do we know things really in our spiritual life? They come to us most directly through our immediate and honest perception. That's what's trustworthy. It's what the Buddha recommended for those who would awaken. Like this Zen master who had a young monk in tow in the garden, and the monk said, tell me about enlightenment. And the master said, see that bamboo, how small it is? And that one over there, how large it is? That's enlightenment. Things are the way that they are. Once a great man sat under the Bodhi tree, wrote this Zen master, saw the morning star and gained enlightenment. He absolutely believed his eyes and ears, his nose and tongue and body. The sky is blue, the earth is brown. Things are as they are. And in seeing the truth of this life, he was freed from all conflict and sorrow, accepting life on its own terms. I would posit that though these may be very few things, they may well be enough for us in spiritual life. I remember teaching one night in San Francisco some years ago for Zen Hospice, um, together with a very wonderful teacher and friend, Brother David Stendelrast. Some of you may know him. And he was talking about the Christian perspective, Christian mystical or Christian perspective on wisdom. And he said, speaking of Jesus, he said, by what authority did Jesus offer his teachings to us? and let people reflect for a minute. You know, on what authority? Jesus is Father, my dad says, you know. <laughs> By what authority? And then he said, if you read the Bible, the story of Jesus, what you see that the authority that he taught from was the direct experience of us as human beings. He would say, who among us does not see the lilies of the field? He taught in these parables, who among us has not seen the sower of seed on stony ground or fertile ground, does not understand the vineyard, does not understand the parable of the mustard seed or whatever it happens to be that's your favorite parable. Who among us cannot see this truth? And this is really what the Buddha also pointed to. My teacher called this, Ajahn Chah, called this awakening or trusting in ourselves, trusting in the one who knows, in our own wisdom heart, that we can find our way. Story. Where is it here? One second.
Once upon a time, a carefree young girl who lived at the edge of a forest and loved to wander became lost. As it grew dark, the little girl didn't return home. Her parents became very worried. They began calling for her, searching in the forest, and it grew darker. And they called the neighbors and people from the town to help and search for the little girl. Meanwhile, the little girl wandered about in the forest and became very worried herself and anxious. It grew darker, and because she couldn't find her way home, she tried one path after another and became more and more tired. And coming to a clearing in the forest, she lay down by a big rock and fell asleep. Her frantic parents and neighbors scoured the forest. They called and called her name, but no avail. Many of the searchers became exhausted and left it by the morning, but the girl's father continued searching all night. And early in the morning, the father came to the clearing where his little girl lay asleep. She suddenly saw the little girl and ran toward her, yelling and making a great noise on the dry branches, which woke the girl up so she wouldn't be frightened. The little girl saw her father with a great shout of joy. She jumped up and exclaimed, Daddy, I found you. (laughs) I'm not sure who finds who. But I think that there is a finding that is innate in us of finding what's true or finding our true home that is only possible for each of us in our own heart. Nobody else can do it for us. And what it means is to see and open to what is in front of us as it is. In the Buddha's teachings, there are only a few basic truths for you to examine and become wise. What if you lived out of the realization of what you really know? For example, things change. Impermanence. That joy and sorrow and birth and death and gain and loss and praise and blame arise and pass all the time for us and that no one can stop this. Why have you lived from the realization of this truth? That we don't possess a single thing, even our own bodies. We can love and care for this earth and people around us and ourselves, but it cannot be grasped because it changes. It will come and it will go. It is the truth. Or the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering. Anybody not have that in their life? Raise your hand, please. There's a cause to suffering, grasping, holding on to what changes. There's an end, a release, a freedom of the heart, the end of suffering, and the path to that of opening, letting go. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, was so simple He would wander around the monastery and come up to us at different points, especially if it looked like we were having a hard time. He'd say, are you suffering today? Kind of inquiring. And if you said no, he'd say, well, good, have a nice morning, you know. And if you'd say yes, he'd say, well, must be very attached. Kind of shake his head and walk on. (laughs) It's kind of like the idiot lights on the dashboard that light up, right? If you're suffering, it's a little direct wire. You must be holding on. It's that simple grasping causes our suffering. Simple truths, impermanence. The cause of suffering in the 
end of it, the freedom of heart. The truth of compassion, that whenever we live with an open heart, with mercy and compassion for our own life and our struggles, which we all have, and for those of everyone else, our life is beautiful. And without compassion, it is filled with sorrow. So basic. So fundamental. And yet it is just these simple truths that lead us to freedom. In one description of enlightenment that's found regularly over and over in the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha described our life he said this human life, as we ordinarily experience it, he described as the five grasped processes. He called them the skandhas or the aggregates. We grasp the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the thoughts, the mind or consciousness itself. And this is what our life is, our, our sense perceptions in our body, our feelings in mind. He said the difference between an enlightened or a free human being and one who suffers is that an ordinary person has thoughts and feelings and perceptions and consciousness and grasps them. And an awakened person has the same thoughts and feelings and perceptions and body and consciousness and doesn't grasp them. The same experience but not held because it's changing. We can't hold on. This is the deepest wisdom of the Buddha that we can love, but we can't possess. I mean, and you know it, whether it's the way you think your body should be, but then it ages and it changes. Say to it, don't age. Stop getting old. Right? I don't want you to. And no matter how much you go to the gym, you know, <laughs> Or whatever you do, jog it and, you know, whatever. It's going to do it. It's going to get old. Or you try to possess your children, which we do. And we love them so much, but then that love also, naturally, as a parent, there's a kind of healthy attachment as we start. But if we really try to possess and control them as they grow and so forth, um, they suffer and we suffer because they're not ours to possess. They're ours to love and care for. So the liberation that the Buddha invites us to experience is here and now, is immediate in this day in our life to know the way things are and live in that truth. Now you might say, well, that's fine, but what about all the teachings of karma and rebirth and the realms of heavens and hells and hungry ghosts and the Abhidharma and Buddhist psychology and the seven factors of enlightenment and the twelve you know, steps of the Nidana chain and the Eightfold Path and all of these things that one has to master. A man came up to see the Buddha at one point and said to him, I hear that you are an awakened one, a Buddha. Is that right? And the Buddha said, just so. And he said, fine, I have some questions for you. What I want to know is what happens when you die? You know, people do want to know that. 
And the Buddha looked at him and being a skillful teacher said, and why is it that you wish to know this? And the man said, because then I'll know how to live my life. The Buddha said, well, suppose that you have many lives to live, which was a common belief in India at the time. How would you live your life? He said, well, if I have many lives to live, I would want to be uh, generous because it feels good, but also would make good karma so I would have abundance in the future and other lives. And I'd want to be very aware and mindful because it would sow the seeds for wisdom in other lives and make me more aware now. And I'd certainly want to be kind and compassionate because it feels really good to live in that way, virtuous and compassionate. And also it would sow the seeds for love and compassion in future lives. The Buddha said, just so, my friend. Now he said, suppose I were to tell you that this is the only life you have. This is it, just one life. How then would you live? And the man reflected and he said, well, I'd want to be generous because you can't take it with you. I mean, what a beautiful thing to be able to be generous of heart and spirit now, especially since I really can't possess it. The Buddha said, yes. He went on and he said, and I would want to be very mindful and aware because if this is the only life I'm given, I'd want to be attentive to every day, every moment I have. Buddha said, yes. He said, and I'd really want to be compassionate and loving if this is the only time I'm here to appreciate and love and open my heart to everyone and everything because this is the only time. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. That was the answer to his question. It's not about belief. All of the teachings are directed to a simplicity and a freedom that you, that I, that we can experience here and now, called the sure heart's release in any day, in any moment. One of my dear friends, beloved friend, and great admirer of mine, and editor and and uh, community member for years and years, Evelyn Sweeney died in the last couple of weeks um, while I was traveling in Switzerland. She had brunch with another community member and friend of mine. She was in her 80s and complained a little of some pain and then got worse and went in the hospital and in a few hours was in a coma and they kind of put her on a ventilator because she was actually very seriously ill and kept her alive till her son could come from Ireland and say his last things to her and friends come and love her goodbye and then she died. Um, and Evelyn was great. She was a very honest, kind of straightforward, at times cantankerous, but um, very devoted to Dharma and her her uh, Dharma life was, Dharma was really her whole life in the last 20 or more years. And, and you know, we would talk about things. She said, I don't know about all these, you know, complicated teachings, Jack. I can't, I keep going, I can't take it. Those Tibetan lamas and those Burmese side is too much. I think it's just letting go, she would say. That's it, just let go, that's all. It's Evelyn. That simple. Ajahn Sumedho, abbot from England, puts it this way. He said, the practice of letting go is very effective for us with complicated minds obsessed by thinking and planning. You simplify your meditation down to just two things. Let go. Two words. 
rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidharma and learn Sanskrit and Pali and the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordained in the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and (laughs) write books and become the world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. go. Or let be is another good translation, because let go sounds like you're getting rid of things. It's really just let be. I did nothing but this for years in my practice. Every time I tried to figure it out and got caught in things and struggled, I'd just say, let it go, let it be, until the desire to fix it would fade away. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become Maitreya, the great Buddha of the age, radiate love throughout the world. But instead I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. And be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. (laughs) I read that for Evelyn as well, because it was so much her spirit, learning what that means. There is a possibility for us, each of us as human beings, what is called our true nature, our Buddha nature, a shift of identity from what we could describe as the body of fear, this small sense of self that doesn't trust and doesn't know that we can love no matter what, to let go of those fears and enter the vast heart of the Buddha, which is our own true nature. And the key is so simple. It's to open our eyes and open our heart with mindful awareness and discover this natural freedom that is always here for us. It's not complicated. You know, when Aldous Huxley was dying, after all his life of spiritual exploration and so forth, someone came to talk to him, a good friend, and said, well, what have you learned in this great, long adventures, life that you lived. He said, I'm almost embarrassed to say that it seems to come down to just being kinder to oneself, to all others. To see with the heart means to see without rejecting a single thing. To meditate, as we talked about earlier as we began the sitting, is to take this seat halfway between heaven and earth and bow to what arises with compassion. I mean, what in your life is a struggle, is unacceptable? What is the pain or the fear or the loss that's at your door? Can you bow to it? Can you honor it with compassion, whatever it is? I don't mean that you have to follow it or give in to it or whatever, but to acknowledge it as it is, to see it with the heart of a Buddha. Because this is the place of freedom. It is found in the reality of the present, where we are, 
and no place else. No ideas, no beliefs, but where we are with the circumstance of our life, the situation that we find ourselves in. And as we learn to practice this, and I don't know, it's almost hard now to separate the quality of awareness or presence and the quality of love. They're almost the same thing, to be open in that way. It grows in us. There are no prerequisites for loving kindness. It's possible to be kind, though bad things are happening in this world. We must each find ways to plant the seeds we wish to have grow in the garden of this earth. Or as Gandhi said, we must be the change we would create in this world. Sylvia Borstein told me some years ago a story. She and her husband, who is her husband is a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, were good friends with a famous psychiatrist who was the, among other things, the president of the American Psychiatric Association for a long time. And in the last years of his life, though they'd been very good friends, he became uh, at first quite forgetful and then senile. He really stopped recognizing people and things and just couldn't remember. But he stayed at home. His wife took care of him. And they said they went to visit him one day for dinner. They were invited over. Um, so they went to the house and rang the doorbell. And he opened the door. This man who had a reputation for a generous spirit and for a, a really golden heart, a, a heart that loved people. And he opened the door and he saw them there with their bottle of wine coming for dinner. And they'd been friends for 30 years. And he looked at them kind of quizzically. He didn't remember who they were. And he said, well, I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, please come in and enjoy my home. I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, please come in and enjoy my home. It is a quality that is undying in us. And it's not the quality of knowledge or things that we collect or learn or know, but it is the quality of being, of the heart. And this freedom which grows in us and which we learn of letting go of love, of forgiveness, could call it by a lot of names, non-attachment. It's not the non-attachment that's confused with indifference, but it's an open-hearted presence to be in this world as it is, with all its flaws and its struggles and its difficulties. I picked up, I don't know why I had it up here, because we had this service last night for Evelyn. Evelyn was also an artist, and she loved making ceramic birds. And We had this room filled with all these birds. The people who came took their birds back, and they, they all were characters, just like Evelyn, this bird is. So. Um, we have to be true to ourselves, not to be followers of the way it's supposed to be, but the practice of opening to this body and this mind and this heart and experience the truth of things as they are. To become your own psychologist, said Lama Yeshe, 
You don't have to learn some big philosophy. All you have to do is examine your own heart and mind. You already examine material things. Every morning you check out the food in your kitchen and your refrigerator, but you don't look at your own mind each morning. <laughs> Checking in your heart and mind is a much more useful and important part of your practice. It's so simple. And then it becomes possible to see things the way they are. And we tend otherwise to get so lost in the way it's supposed to be. I mean, think of how many things in this last day or week or month, how it's supposed to be. And by this I don't mean we don't care for the world and care for the injustices, the, the pervasive racism and the fact that there's still so much poverty and so many wars and that we don't care and do what we can in so many places. But to do it from the place of understanding rather than blame. Imagine walking along the sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground and as you raise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to yell, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our human situation is like this. When we clearly see, we'll realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is blindness, is ignorance. Then we can open the door of compassion. It's so simple. The great way is not difficult, for those who have no preferences, it says in Zen. When attachment and hatred disappear in a moment, everything becomes clear and undisguised. We see the world as it is, and then we can love it. And meditation, in a way, is just coming back to listen to the heart, to what we really know, over and over, so simply. It's strange. People look for the mystery in special states, kundalini, you know, non-duality, levitation, you know, chakras, all this stuff. I mean, it's great. I, I mean, I've had my share of these experiences. But they pass, you know. And the mystery is actually the weird, amazing, phenomenal thing of, how did you get in this human body? Being on earth, walking around with two legs and a little bit of fur, what's left of it, in certain parts of your body, you know, and this hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals every day and grind them up to eat, you know, and talking. Here we uh, move this air through and uh, compress it in these muscles and, and vibrate it and make these sounds. And I can say elephant, and you picture the elephant with the trunk, right, and all of that. I mean, it goes to your ear and beats the eardrum and goes through the neurons in the nerve and changes the sodium-potassium balance in the nerve. And the elephant, and you, ah, I make this sound and you can see. It's bizarre that we communicate and can envision things from these ah, funny noises that come out of this hole in the body. I mean, the whole thing is weird. It is. 
you know. As Rumi says, the mystery comes trooping out of emptiness, moment after moment, thoughts, feelings, forms, perceptions. Every day new, and then it vanishes and a new day appears. It's true. Where did yesterday go? You know, or the spring, or the year 2000. Remember the millennium? That was a big deal, right? It's gone. <laughs> Back with the pyramids and, you know, the pharaohs and the dinosaurs. Even last week has gone back to nothing. It's a phenomenal. It appears and disappears. Yeah, so we're looking for something mysterious. This is it. <laughs> My good and respected friend Roger Walsh, who was, at the time that he told me this story, a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University, MD, PhD, written books on Christian mysticism and Buddhist practice and shamanism and done years of all kinds of mystical things. So anyway, being a rather thoroughgoing fellow as he is, he decided in his research to read the Encyclopedia of World Religions to try to understand his spiritual life better from a you know, Ahura Mazda and things like that, to Z Zoroaster and all the things in between the ancient Sumerian religion and the Coptic Christianity, you know, and Balinese mysticism and, and uh, various forms of, um, I don't know, African shamanism and, and Umbanda in South America, the whole nine yards. So after he read it, I said to him, so what did you learn from this, Roger? And he said, what was amazing is to read about these religions and see each one representing a system for millions of human beings, sometimes for centuries or millennia, you know. And each one had a story of creation and of what was good and what was bad. And what I felt after reading one after another was that religions offer a story to point us to or to place on top of the mystery. And each one is a pointing to this great mystery of being alive where we are. So spiritual life isn't so much about self-improvement, you know, though there's some room for that in some of our lives, it's true. <laughs> but that's not its essence or its heart. It's really opening to this mysterious life as it is and living wisely and compassionately with this life that changes day after day. Now, one of my favorite stories to read, which I haven't for a couple of years, but those of you who've heard it a lot can take it as a bedtime story, is from my, our, our dear local friend, Ed Brown. It's actually my daughter's favorite story from my writings. Um, he says, when I first started to cook at Tassajara, Ed is the author of the Tassajara bread book and a very wonderful Zen teacher, he said, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe, try variations, nothing worked. The biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I'd made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you add milk to the mix and blob the dough in spoonfuls on the pan. You don't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You tap the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. 
And then you twisted the can open more and put the pre-made biscuits on the pan and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what our life should look like compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? <laughs> Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits would extol their virtues eating one after another, but to me, they just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place and awakening not right compared to what? Oh, my word, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came this exquisite moment of actually tasting my own biscuits without comparing them to some idea, some hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, all those Zen things. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, the moments when you realize your life is fine just as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to some beautifully packaged, prepared product makes it seem wrong or insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit or a life with no dirty bowls, no conflict, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. But then savoring, actually tasting the present moment, this experience, how unfathomable. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what a Bisquick Zen student looked like, calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends said, was looking good. Right? <laughs> and we've all done it, trying to look good as husband or wife or parent, trying to attain perfection in our life, our family, trying to make Pillsbury biscuits. Well, the heck with it, I say. Why not wake up and smell the coffee? How about some good old home cooking? When the Buddha was walking down the road shortly after his enlightenment, he encountered a man who saw that the Buddha had this amazing kind of radiant presence and stopped him and said, what are you? Are you some kind of a god? Buddha said, no. Well, are you some kind of a wizard or magician? No, he said. Well, are you some kind of a deva or angel? No, said the Buddha. Well, are you a man? No, the Buddha answered. Well, what are you then? The Buddha replied, I am awake. And in those three words gave the whole teachings for 2,500 years to follow. Buddha means the one who is awake, the one who sees life as it really is. And this is our own Buddha nature, to see life as it is, to bow to it with compassion, with all its sorrows, and all its beauty, and then to care for it with our heart. As Zen master Nyogen Sensaki said, do not put a false head on top of your own. Don't fill your head with all these ideas of how it's supposed to be. Then moment after moment, attend to your steps carefully. That is all. 
there's some way in which, as I said, attention and love are almost the same thing. The emergence and blossoming of understanding, of love, of wisdom, has nothing to do with any tradition, says Tony Packer, no matter how ancient or impressive. It has nothing to do with teachers or time. It happens completely on its own when a human being questions, wonders, listens, without getting stuck in fear or pleasure or pain. When those become quiet and the heart opens, heaven and earth reveal themselves. The mystery, the essence of life is right before us the moment we listen. You know, when you meet the greatest of teachers, at least when I have, their messages too are so simple. Ajahn Chah used to say things like, when you act with compassion or act with understanding, beautiful things will follow. Then he'd be quiet for a while, let you think about that. You know, if you're suffering a lot, you must be really attached. Even in the midst of pain, you can be free. Or the Dalai Lama who says, my religion is kindness. My religion is kindness. So simple. Is there anything I can do to make myself enlightened? As little as you can do to make the sun return. Then what is the use of all this spiritual practice and meditation? Oh, to make sure you're not asleep when the sun rises. That's all. So simple to help us be present for the life that is given to us. And it's not the ideas or the words. I remember, you know, what I say or what you say or anyone says. Zhuangzi, the Taoist sage, said that a dog is not a good dog because it's a good barker, right? It doesn't matter all the sounds that we make, but really how we live from the heart. And it doesn't have to be some great momentous thing. Meher Baba, who says the scope of service, compassion, is not limited to great gestures and heroic acts and huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, A glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also of service, although there may be no thought of serving another in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would not only be unbeautiful, it would be unbearable. So simple and organic. It is the wisdom that we already understand, the one who knows in us. Rachel Carlson, I end with her words. A child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed 
even lost before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the blessings of children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout life, that we would keep our true instinct for what is beautiful and mysterious alive every day that we live. So let's sit for a moment, please. To Evelyn Sweeney, wherever you are, may your spirit be carried like the sound of that bell, open and free. May you be at peace. And for everyone, those who we know who need healing or care or love, may you all be held in the great heart of compassion. May you be free. Thank you for your kind attention tonight and in the week ahead, take time to be still, to walk in nature, to sit and meditate, to whatever connects you with that one who knows in your own heart. Trust that, live from that place of compassion and wisdom, because you can. Thank you. Good night.